All right, why don't you turn with me to Titus chapter 2, and we're going to be just a small section here tonight, verses 11 through 15, Um, and the title of the study is Grace at Work, and so this is going to be a study that's all about the grace of God. Let's read this whole section together. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. And so that was Paul's exhortation. It is, uh, as we read it, his exhortation to um, young pastor Titus as he labors on the island of Crete. So let's first of all just look at verse 11 where we read that about how grace brings salvation. Grace, this is the, you know, one, we have three major categories. Grace uh, brings salvation. Grace um, works sanctification. And grace is, I think, our motivation. I think that's the third point I have. I'll give them to you as we go. But that phrase, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It's offered to all and it is needed by all. I, does that need to be said? Yes, it does. It is offered to all, and it is needed by all. And in both of those comments, they, they kind of attack or should inform us, positively speaking, a um, different aspects of how the grace of God um, brings salvation. Those, some would say, it is offered to all. There are, there are plenty of people that would say, listen, don't take this gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't go and take this overseas. This is a Western religion. They will tell us. This is a Western religion, and so don't go over to places where they have, uh, they worship other gods and begin to tell them. Um, and, you know, has, has anybody ever heard that before? Has anybody ever had some? Yeah. I, I love to just stop and say, um, are you sure about your geography there? <laughs> are you sure? I mean, you know, you say this is a Western religion. Do you, are you sure it's a Western religion? Or... Maybe it was Jesus from the East, like the Middle East, maybe from Israel. And, and so, I mean, this is, so this is often what's said to try and silence the gospel. I can understand what some well-meaning people are thinking. They're completely wrong. I'm not making any excuse, but I, I can understand what some well-meaning people, um, misguided but well-meaning, it's like, well, listen, no, don't take this message in there. You're going to change their religion. It's going to maybe cause them problems. They might be persecuted. It might you know, harm their business if they become a Christian in a Hindu nation. It might, it might get them in jail. It might cause their families to be separated. And all of that is potentially true for following Jesus Christ. It's, it's potentially true. And it happens. And Jesus said these things would happen. And so they don't want that to take place. But you know, that's, that, I, I can understand the heart and the mind behind it. But we understand that there's something that is, that's more important than a job, than your health, than family. And that is the soul. The soul of men and women. And so we will take the message and we will preach 
the message to all people. Isn't that what Jesus said? Tarry in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high, and then take it, you know, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and what's the last place? The ends of the earth. Go everywhere. Take this message everywhere. So really, we don't have the opportunity to evaluate whether we offer this to all because we are servants of the Most High. And he said, take this message to all people. So it's offered to all, but it's also needed by all. Everybody needs to experience the grace of God and salvation. All of mankind is in this place where they need to experience this. I'm going to read the same verse, uh, Titus uh, 2.11. I want to read it from the New Li- I just read from the New King James. I want to read it from the New Living Translation and then from the New American Standard Bible. And so, uh, again, just for the sake of continuity, let me read first from the King James. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. New Living Translation. For the grace of God has, uh, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. So all people, all people need this salvation. They all need this experience. And this is what we find throughout Scripture. 1 Timothy 2.4, speaking of the Lord, who will have all men to be saved. This is the will of God that, that all men would be saved. Not just some men, not just people in the West, not just people in the East. Not just people that have grown up in Christian homes. The Lord wants all people to be saved. Or 1 Timothy 4.10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of what? All men. Especially of those who believe. So he is the one that every human being has to do with. doesn't matter your location, and it, nor does it matter your character. Or how good of a person you are. All people need to be saved. Even the good people. Are there good people out there? Well, as far as we communicate and evaluate people in in, in the world, yeah, there are good people out there. I'm sure you know some of them. I hope you're one of them. I hope you live with some of them. I hope you live with good people. But this is, we're talking about a different kind of goodness. We're talking about a different kind of need. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That first phrase, the consequences of your sinful and my sinful action is what? It's death. That's why this is needed by all men, because all people have sinned, all have sinned. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. God does not hear the prayer of people who have not reconciled with him. The, The New Testament tells us that sin makes us enemies with God. And so... The first prayer that the Lord hears is the prayer of repentance. And he will hear that prayer at any time, at any moment, no matter how dark, no matter how miserable. I don't know what your life is. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know who you know. And who knows who's listening on the radio right now. Maybe you have just committed a terrible crime and you are in the darkest space you ever could have imagined. You cannot believe the the person you became. You would say, I am not a good person. And you're thinking, you know, well, there's no hope for me. No, there is hope for you. 
Because if you will come to the Lord and you will confess your sin, he will hear you. He, he hears every prayer of repentance. But he doesn't hear every prayer until there's repentance. And this is what we read there in Isaiah 59 too. He will hide his face from us so that he will not hear. Or Jeremiah 5.25, your iniquities have turned these things away. And he's talking about blessing. And your sins have withheld good from you. So salvation's needed because we, we miss out on the blessings. We miss out on the goodness and the salvation that the Lord wants to bring. In Mark 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If sin is not a problem and a separator from God that causes all men to need salvation, then why did Jesus come? If all roads lead to God, then why would God send his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to be humiliated and repeatedly mocked and made fun of, eventually to have uh, be convicted of a capital crime and hung on a cross. And before that happened, the son said, Father, if there's any other way, then let this cup, let this process pass from me. And yet he didn't do that. The Lord didn't say, the Father didn't say, yeah, there is another way. You don't have to do this. So he said, you've got to go do this. And Jesus was resigned to it. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So he came to give his life a ransom for many. If all people don't need salvation, and if our sins have not separated us from God, then why did Jesus, you've got a crazy religion. <laughs> you have a messed up religion if people don't need to be saved and people are not separated from God. Because what you have as a supposedly loving heavenly father who sent his son, perfect union, perfect love, to die on the cross without purpose. Your religion does not make sense. It's, 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 it's conflicted. It's like, well, who is this father that would send his son to do that? But if it is true, and it is true, that man's sin is separated him from God, and the only way for him to be made right is to put his faith and trust in Jesus, receive that grace and be saved, then you have the most loving, amazing, and only religion that can bring salvation. To this same point, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus took our sin, we get his righteousness. This is how we deal with the separation. To Jesus was imputed your, your sin, to, to me, to us, was imputed his righteousness. If there wasn't a problem, then why this? And there are some other ones, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Um, and you, why don't you just write that reference down? You can go look it up and spend some more time on it. And then 1 John 2, 1 and 2 says, My dear children, I am writing this to you that you will not sin. But if you do sin, there's someone to plead for you before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who pleads, who pleases God completely. He is a sacrifice for our sins. He takes away not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. I mean, so, listen, this is available to all men, and all men need it, and there's evidence that all men need it because of the incarnation and the crucifixion. If, if, if you, that was not necessary, then why did it happen? So this is something that's important. So that, 
that, that our first major point is grace brings salvation. It's offered to all. It's needed by all. And then this salvation, as we read, comes through grace. It comes through grace. To all men, this grace has appeared. There isn't a group of people or a type of person that the Lord says, that's ah, not for you. It's appeared to all men. It's available to all people. So in other words, we cannot experience the forgiving grace of God apart from the one who's appeared. He has appeared. He is the one that has brought this grace, and we must come through him to receive the grace. You need grace. You need the favor, the kindness of the Lord. Many think that they're good enough. Nobody is good enough because nobody is sinless. Nobody is perfect except for one man. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And you're like, well, what about Mother Teresa? Well, praise the Lord for Mother Teresa and all of her charitable works that she's done, but they will not save her. She needed to have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You could point to a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, you know, Mother Teresa's all combined together in one good person, all of the best qualities, and it still would not be enough because all have sinned, leaving us separated from the Lord. The standard is sinless righteousness. That's what the standard is to get into the presence of the Lord. But you can only find that in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And there's your grace. He took your sin upon his body. He bore it. And not just your sin, but the sin of the entire world. Every genocidal maniac, every, every dirty, rotten, filthy, disgusting sin that has ever been committed was placed on Jesus Christ in a single moment as he hung upon the cross. The sin of the world, not just the sin of good people that are trying to you know, make a right with God, the sin of the world. But how, why would he do that? Because of his grace. His grace, his kindness, his love that he wants to pour out and bring you to. This is how salvation comes. It does not come through works because you cannot do enough good works. You may have a pile of good works, but what about the one thing that you have dealt with? And we read, and we're going to talk about this on Sunday actually, but if you break one, if, you, if you're a law keeper and you want to try and get to the Lord by being good, it, you've got to keep how much of the law? Does anybody know? All of it. And if you break one part of the law, you're guilty of how many parts of the law? All of it. You cannot divide the law. It's indivisible, if you will. It's a complete unit. You can't just say, I'm just going to do this one. And so I've got this one, you know, I've got all of this, but I just got this one thing that I messed up on, which nobody has just one thing. But for the sake of argument, then you're still a lawbreaker and you're still guilty of the entire thing. And that is why we needed somebody to take our guilt and our shame and our sin in their body and for it to be punished. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Who hung on the tree? Jesus. The curse of the law. He took that curse. And he died on the cross. But when he did that, he transferred to those who put their faith and trust in him this grace that brings salvation. It really is amazing. You know, nobody would ever think up a religion like this. Nobody would ever think of, you know, well, let's have God send his only son to this earth. And he'll be born, um, you know, to a woman. And then we will 
you know, mankind will try to, you know, kill him and snuff him out from the earliest days of his birth. We'll, we'll mock him and make fun of him his entire life. And then when he starts his ministry, um, all the meaningful people of the world, the religious leaders and the community leaders and the, and the, and the governmental leaders will all uh, convene and they will kill him the most terrible death that's ever been invented by man. And then God will want to show us favor. Who would think up something like that? That does not make sense. But this is the wisdom of God. This is the love of the Lord. Well, how do we receive this grace? How is grace received? Well, Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you've been saved. And what are the next two words? Through faith. So there's this grace out there that has come from God that produces and gives us salvation. Wow, that's amazing. But how do I lay my hands on that? How do I get hold of that grace that brings salvation? What's the, what's the mechanism? What's the process? How many good spiritual deeds? You know, Jesus was asked, what is the work that I must do to have salvation? And he says, here's the work you need to do. Believe. Have faith. So if you will... There's this wonderful, amazing salvation that is out there. And it's come through the grace of God. It's not come through your good works. How do you lay hold of that? How do you make it your own? The hands that lay hold of it is called faith. Faith reaches out and receives it. Faith is belief. Faith is trust. I believe that you did come to this earth. You did die on the cross for my sins. And that if I... And that you have transferred, me, transferred to me righteousness, and I can have that if I believe. I believe that you did that. How hard is that? That is not hard at all. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is all of grace. It's all of grace. So if you're like, no, nah, I can't, I'm not good enough. No, no kidding. We know that about you already. But we also know that about ourselves. None of us are good enough. None of us have enough works. It's not of works. Because if it was of works, what would the heart do? It would boast. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. And so all of this, this is this grace. It is a gift of God. It's benevolence. But how do you receive it? You receive it through faith. Well, that seems too easy. Says the recipient but not the one who's provided and done all the work. I mean, there has never been anything that has been more arduous or difficult in human history than, than the creator of the universe being crucified and nailed to the tree and being separated from his father so that we could be connected to him. So, yeah, it's easy for us. It's not cheap. It's, it was very costly. So... This is what the Lord wants. It's like, well, I just feel like I should do something. Okay, there is a process. It's called the law. Never meant to save, but if you want to try and work your way, if you're just like, now I've got to do it myself, then you, there are 613 commandments that you need to follow in the Old Testament, and you need to keep them all, and you never need to miss a single one of them. And when we talk about this, it's not just the sins of commission, the things I do, I covet after my neighbor's you know, new car, that, that's something, oh, I, I need to not do that. But it's also the sins of omission, the things you don't do. And let's be honest, there's probably not anyone in here who knows what 
from memory what all 600, I don't know what all of those are. Do, are you sure you want to make it hard? <laughs> and, and then let's say somehow you could actually do that. And let's say somehow you've done that your entire life. You've kept everything that there was. You've not failed in any point, not even in the points of your heart or into your mind, let alone the actions. And let's say you did that. How precarious is it? This thing that you've worked for and that you've created and you've made. I am perfect. Don't go 56 in a 55 because it's all over. You're a lawbreaker and you're guilty of the whole thing. Because you are not keeping, you know, the laws of the land. I mean, you, if you were there, I mean, you wouldn't even never want to go outside. But you got to go outside because you got to love your neighbors. You can't just go hide away in a monastery. No, 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 you don't get to do that. You got to go interact with really difficult people. So you see, it, it is grace and it comes through faith. It is not coming through works. And what does this grace do? Well, what we've been talking about. It brings salvation. I don't have to pay the penalty for my sin. That's salvation. I do not have to pay for the penalty of my sin. Cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. But there's only one that's hung on the tree for the, for the law being broken. Everybody else will spend a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. And we are saved from that. We are saved from hell's fire. We are saved from eternal separation. Well, many, especially, and there are many today who say, well, I don't know if I really believe in hell. I don't know if I believe in the lake of fire. Well, you can disagree with the Bible if you want, but it doesn't change what the Bible says. The Bible clearly states this, and Jesus spoke of it often. So that's our first major point, that, that grace brings us, right, salvation. It, it's, it's what it does. But the second point in verse 12 is grace teaches us sanctification. So Paul dealt with this issue because we're some, oh, he's one of those grace teachers. He's saying you don't have to keep the law. Easy believism. You know, he's the kind of guy that says God, God's grace, his kindness has come to you, and now you can go and live however you want to. Well, in Romans, his response to that, he puts it as a rhetorical question, question, you know, shall I sin uh, that grace may abound? And the answer is no, certainly not. God forbid. Absolutely no way. So grace does not teach you're free to go live how you want to. I, you've heard me say this before, and I, and I stand by this statement. If you have received the grace of God, if you think you have received the grace of God, and this frees you up to go live in sin, let me tell you, you don't know the first thing about the grace of God. You know, you know about something else, some twisted form of what the Bible teaches, but you don't know about the grace of God. Because as, as a, a, a very desperate grace recipient, I cannot get away with anything. I don't, I don't get to, you know, sometimes it's like, ah, oh, yeah, I didn't want to do that. Well, I was like, well, why don't you want to be a servant, Troy? I, you know, you can't, can you get away with sin and feel good about it? Can you have a bad attitude on the road? Can you have a thought that enters your mind? Can you, get, can you have a lustful thought? Can you have a lazy thought about the kingdom of God and serving and all that and, feel, and, and not be convicted? I can't. 
It's like it's a super short leash with the Lord, isn't it? You know know why? Because you know where the Lord is? He dwells inside of me. He dwells inside of you. And the Holy Spirit jealously is yearning to conform us into the image of Christ. And so we don't get away with those. So the person who says, oh yeah, I'm saved and I, I, you know, I've Live with my boyfriend, girlfriend. We have sex all the time. I drink. I, I you know, I get, I get, I'm a drunkard. I go out and party. I do drugs. I, I steal. I cheat. But it, you know, God doesn't care. Yeah, you don't know anything about salvation. You, you don't, you don't understand what the grace of God is all about. Now, listen to the person who has experienced the grace of God. They may fall terribly. I mean, just beyond what anybody could ever imagine a person would do. And, and I would say for the person who does that and feels the deep conviction of the Spirit of God and comes back to the Lord beating their chest saying, Oh, God, forgive me. I am such a sinner. I'm not worried about them because that is what grace does. Grace sanctifies us. And you, you can hear people say, well, the pastor's got to be careful when he starts talking about grace because you start teaching grace, then that's going to really open the door for people to go to live however they want to. Are you sure about that? Because, let's, again, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What else does the grace of God do? It's an instructor. It's one that, in in, in the word teaching here, in the Greek, it's a word that would be used of somebody that was hired in the household to train up a child and discipline them in all the right ways. So grace not only saves, but grace also is an instructor, and it's a teacher. Does grace say, go live it up? No, grace teaches us two things, or a couple of things here, but they're categorized into the negative and the positive. It teaches us negatively, deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Positively, live soberly, righteously, and godly. That's what the grace of God teaches. Don't ever be afraid of sharing about the grace of God and that he is, continues to pour out his grace upon us. If somebody takes that, grace and they twist it and they run with it to go indulge themselves in their sin that is not on you that is on them because the grace of God teaches us otherwise grace says you know what I'm going to deny ungodliness I am not going to allow this to rule in my life I'm I'm not going I'm going to deny the worldly lust all the things I see going on in the world, all the things that the world puts out there, I'm not going to do them. All the things that kind of you know, well up within me, the ungodliness, I'm not going to indulge it. And again, we live in a time when denying yourself and your urges and your impulses seems like anathema to our present age. You, you want me to deny this sexual urge? Yes. That's exactly what Jesus said. Yes. If you want to follow me, take up your cross and what? Deny yourself. Don't, when people begin to press you, like, are you saying that I should deny myself? Say, I'm saying all of us should deny ourselves. We should deny ourselves. This is what, what the grace of God teaches. Well, it, it, isn't it interesting how the, even the teaching of the grace and on this point is, is twisted? Well, I believe I should be able to live however I want to because I believe God is gracious. But wait a minute. That's not what it says. 
What it says is, grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So it's a, you can see how that is being completely twisted. I, I know for some of you, you're like, why is he on this point so hard? <laughs> because it is, there's a huge leak in the church on this. And it's just like people are being pulled out. And, and you're put in the corner. Oh, you're, I, don't, I can't serve a God like yours. Your God's angry and mean. I believe in a gracious God. And you're like, wait, I don't believe in an angry, mean God. I believe in a gracious God. Yeah, but I believe that God's grace would just let me, you know, doesn't he want me to be happy? Ah, he wants you to be joyful. He, but he also wants you to be holy. Can we talk about that, that H word for a minute rather than the happiness H word? What about the holiness? This is what he wants. If you can see what's happening. And this is happening inside the church. Inside the church in such a huge way. Parents don't think that this is not hitting the minds and the hearts of your kids. Oh, no, no, no. It's not happening. We've got a protected household. Yeah, but what about the demons? What are you doing for them? How are you... Because, you know, the, the doctrines of demons, have you heard about this before? And, you know, talks about There's doctrines of demons. And so it, it could come from a, a news, you can shut that down. It could come from a peer, maybe you could shut that down. It comes through the media, you can shut that down. But how do you shut down the God of this age? How do you deal with him? Well, I mean, we, we deal with him. We, we raise our kids in the, in, in the training and the admonition of the Lord. But my, my point is simply this. Don't delude yourself into thinking you can create such a holy bubble for your kids that they can't be tempted and have these same ideas being uh, threatened. It's like, yeah, but we're not allowing that influence to come into them. Yeah, but it's the God of this age. It's a prince of the power of the air. He's got a, he's got a momentum going in this current age in which we live. And if it could be as simply as shutting it all down, isn't that kind of what the whole monastic thing is? Let me just get away from everything. Let me just retreat so far away that I'll never lust again. And then you find out that you're there and you are still a lustful person. And so it's no solution. Oh, I think we should protect our kids. I'm not saying swing the gates wide open, but understand we must and see what's going on in this age and, and sit down with our kids and, and define what grace really is. And what grace is, it negatively says, you know, deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Positively, live soberly, righteously, and godly. This is what the grace of God teaches us. So important. In verses 13 and 14, we see the believer's motivation, looking for the blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that, we might re that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. So let's talk about the kind of motivation we should have. Righteous living, this is the right conclusion. And, and so when we think about the return of the Lord, we should be motivated to live righteously. We should be motivated as we think of verse 13, that he is going to appear. Um, and actually, verse 11, we've already hit this word once. It says, uh, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, the incarnation, right? The life of Jesus, the crucifixion, it's appeared to all men. But there's going to be another appearing. There's going to be another uh, you know, epiphania, another appearing of the Lord, and it's going to be at his second coming. 
And so we're looking for this blessed hope. We're looking for his glorious appearing. And this should motivate us to live soberly, righteously um, in this present age, right? This is, this is what it should be motivating. Jesus is coming back. So he talks about how we should live, and he says, looking to. Because he knows that if we are looking to the moment that the Lord returns, that that's going to have an impact on how we live our life. It's going to call us into righteousness. It's going to call us into holiness. We, we want to be found doing the right thing when the Lord returns. And this is the blessed hope. It's the glorious appearing of the Lord. So I want to Greek out, geek out uh, for just a moment. So um, some of you are like, ah, the, geek, the Greek thing, the geek thing again. No, just hang with me because it's, it's not a major point, but there is such an important truth that is contained in this verse 13. And we're going to zero in on that last phrase, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. A, a question has arisen around this last clause of verse 13, and it is, is Paul saying that Jesus is our great God and Savior, or is he referring to God, as in the Father, and our Savior, Jesus Christ? In other words, is he referring to one or two people of the Trinity? If he's referring only to Jesus, then this is a definitive statement of the deity of Christ. There is another example of this Greek construction that I'm going to explain that's also found in 2 Peter 1.1. You'll have to look it up on your own just for the sake of time. But it's, it's this, this clause is very similar to 2 Peter 1.1. And there are 80 places in the New Testament where this Greek construction is in place. It's called, some of you have looked at this before, you'll be familiar, but it's called the Granville Sharp Rule. It's named after a man with the last name Granville. And um, so this is the rule. And you find it 80 times in Scripture that it happens. So this is not some simply isolated thing, but there's two places where it refers specifically as constructed as it relates to the deity of Jesus. And that is one of them, Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1. And so this rule, the Granville Sharp rule, focuses on a Greek clause that has two nouns preceded by an article and joined by chi. Uh, Say, I think it's already up there. All right, so um, if you look at this, and I, much to my disappointment, I did a typo on this. So the last T should actually be another S, T-S-K-T. But you can see the God and Savior. So the is, is the article. Um, your two nouns are God and Savior. And then you have the chi or and. And so w- what you have is one article. And typically in Greek, you would have an article before um, another noun like Savior, but in this case, you don't. So when you look at that, if you go to the next slide, you can see kind of maybe like a a diagram. Does anybody remember these terrible days of, of, yeah, terrible. Yeah, but you're an English teacher. Put your hand down. That doesn't count. So um, so obviously I did this here in in the, the 
English. It just allows you to see it. So you have the, and then you have God and Savior, and you have the chi that is joining these two together. And what does that mean? It's referring to Jesus Christ. So th this is the idea that's being communicated here, and this is a definitive statement. Now, I, I, there, you can find some that will not come down um, hard on this and say this is absolutely the case, but I will tell you, those who are the most respected uh, Greek grammarians in our day, they say definitively, this is a statement of Jesus Christ that you have the article the is referring to God and Savior. And of course, we know who Savior is, right? It tells us Savior is who? Jesus Christ. And so um, who, when you have this kind of order, you have God and then Savior. If you go back to the other slide, and you have it in this order, the second noun, when it's constructed the way it is, and I'm simplifying it, but when you have the second noun that is... Um, stated it will always be the same person as the first noun when you have this construction. Always. So when you have Savior, it will be the same person as God. So we have God and Savior. Well, who's Savior? Well, we get further information in the verse. We're not just stuck with that one clause because we get another descriptor. He is Jesus Christ. So we know who Savior, we know Savior is Jesus Christ, and we know Savior is God because of this construction. If you take the time to go look at 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, you, you'll be able to, even though you don't know Greek, you'll be able to identify that same construction. Now, the thing that you may be wondering about is in our English translation, it says, um, God and Savior Jesus Christ. You're like, where's the article? Well, oftentimes, the article, the, is not translated into the English just so it reads like English. Um, so this is a, although you don't see the, the word the or the article in English, in every Greek text, the article to, and you can see it there, um, it's that first word on that line, that is, tr would be translated the word the. So when you look at these, sometimes it might be hard to say, well, where's the the? Well, you do have to look at the Greek to see because not all the words are always translated because they just, it doesn't make sense. You wouldn't want it. It's like, well, I want every word. No, you don't. If you did it exactly the way it was written in a straight wooden translation, you would be like, what in the world? So this is why we thank the Lord for men and women who have studied the language and they labor so tirelessly to present it and give us the Bibles that we have and so we should be so thankful. But I, I just want, so we're like, well, what does all that mean? Jesus is clearly stated as being God here. He's not a God, a sub-God, a lesser God. He is God. He, it is a clear statement of his divinity. So the little, little Greek there for you guys, the, the big point is simply um, that this is a statement of the deity of Christ. Again, on this slide, if you're trying to write it down, um, the T stands for the article, the S is a substantive or a noun, the K stands for chi, which is the uh, Greek word and, and then it should be another sub uh, substantive under um, savior. So sorry I messed that up, but that's the T-S-K-S um, uh, model, if you will, so it's often referred in that way too. 
the Granville Sharp rule. So, hey, yes, Jesus is, I mean, no news to us here tonight. Hopefully it's the first time you've heard it. But it is nice. I love finding these passages where it so clearly speaks of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Um, so we are to be motivated by the return of the Lord to, to live soberly and righteously in this present age. And um, so his return motivates us. But verse 14, we should also be motivated by his sacrifice, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. Why should I have to live in holiness? Why should I live righteously? Well, he's coming back. We well, got anything else? Yeah, he died for you. He died for you that he might sanctify you and make you righteous. Does that not touch your heart on any level? That I, that I would want to say thank you and I want to respond to the Lord and saying, if you died that I might be redeemed from every lawless deed, then I don't want to touch any lawless deed. I want to be done with it. And I don't know, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you're walking with the Lord in like so many areas of your life. You're just, you're walking in holiness, you're walking in righteousness, but there's that one door of bitterness, and you're just, you're holding that thing tight. It's like, nope, we're not opening that. I've got everything else, but I've got this one area over here. I, you know, I kind of feel a little entitled to it after the way I've been treated, after what's happened, after so many times, forgiving so many times, and now I just, I don't, I, I feel justified in my bitterness. That's a lawless deed. And Jesus died on the cross, and he bought you out of the slave market of sin, redeemed you, that you might be free of all that stuff. Well, I just don't know if I can ever let that go. Of course you can let it go. And, and if you're struggling to let it go, then let the grace of God teach you. Let the grace of God motivate you. And knowing that he hung on the cross for that sin, may it set us free. The third motivation is that he, we should be motivated by his purpose for me. At the end of verse 14, and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. He's got a, he's got a God has a divine purpose for my life and your life. And that is we would be his special people and we would be energizer bu uh, bunnies for good works. We just like, and the idea for zealous would be um, imagine that you've put a pot of water on the stove and um, it is boiling so hard that the lid is just kind of, you know, sounding. I mean, it's just a rolling um, boil. That's the idea of, of zealous, being on fire for something. And we are to be zealous for good works. So this is what the, the grace of God does. It, it teaches us and it sanctifies us and it motivates us. God redeemed me. In his grace, he redeemed me. That should therefore motivate me to want to live out the purposes he redeemed me for. I don't want to thwart what you saved me for. And what he saved me for was to be his own special people, peculiar person, if you will. We talked a little bit about this on Sunday. But we're to be his special people. He has, he has set his love and his kindness. You are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is no small thing. This is who you are. You're part of the church. You're part of the redeemed. You're part of those that have been saved. We are his special people. We are his special forces, if you will. 
And he's got special tasks for us. Why? Well, I'm not like those. Well, then why did you sign up to become a soldier in the army of God then? I mean, you, you, knew, you, knew, you knew the score. If you want to follow me, you're going to take up your cross. You're going to die to yourself. You're going to deny yourself. You're going to follow me. I'm going to go all over the places. Where are you going to go? Well, I'm going to send you to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I'm going to send you out as witnesses and lights to this world. Yeah, but what about my career? I don't know about your career. I mean, and of course God knows about our career, but in the context of where I'm saying this, it's like when we put our, yeah, yeah, but you know, what about this? What about the Lord's like, I don't know anything about that. What I know is I'm calling you to be a fisherman and I have works that I want you to do. Are you prepared to walk in them? Well, you know, what about my education? What about, what about my, you know, my retirement? I don't know anything about that. I know what your eternity is going to look like. Is that kind of like your retirement? And you see, we, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray about any of those things, but when we are putting those things up as excuses for not doing what, the, what God has called us to, I think the Lord's just like, are you kidding me? Really? I died on the cross for you. I, my son appeared on earth, the incarnation, remember that? The crucifixion, the ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. Remember you got saved, my spirit now dwells in you, and I'm, I'm, I brought grace to you. And I've redeemed you, and I've taken all of the lawless deeds away, and I want you to be on fire for my good works. And if you're thinking, man, you're really hitting this hard, Troy. Well, yeah, look at verse 15. We're to preach about grace's work. Speak these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. I can tell you as I read this, that I, I read it and I put my name in there. Troy, speak these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority, Troy. Don't let anyone despise you, Troy. I, I take it as a very direct command to me as a pastor and as, and as a minister. And so on the authority of God's word and its exhortation, get to work. Be done with the lesser things. Deny yourself of that ungodliness and those worldly lusts. Be zealous for good works. Don't just think about one day I'm going to get zealous. Be zealous. Do, be, be at that place where you are engaged with so many things. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, and sometimes it's like, well, I don't want to burn out. But we are called to be poured out. Remember this? How Paul poured himself out as a drink offering for the Philippians? So yeah, don't burn out, which would mean don't do things that God has not called you to do and don't do them in your own strength because that will burn you out. But other than that, if you do what God's called you to do and you do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be poured out. You will be drained out. You will be tired out. It will be difficult. You can be tested in almost every way as you follow the Lord. But that's not burning out. Burning out is when you are doing what you're not supposed to be doing and you're doing maybe what you're supposed to be doing in your own strength. That will burn you out. But I think it was Spurgeon who said that he would rather burn out than rust out. And, but, you know, there is a better way, and that's to be poured out. Doing the things that God has called you to do. So this is, this is what we've been called to. We've not been called to just like, well, yeah, I, I think I can easily fit that in my schedule to serve Jesus. Okay, I'm glad that it fits in your schedule easily. What if it doesn't fit easily? 
What if it just what if it what if it just pours you out for every day of your life? Is that all right? Is that okay? It should be okay. So this last phrase, let no one despise you, it's an interesting one that I often think of because <laughs> this can really be taken in the wrong way and you, you know, as a pastor, okay, just as pastors, and I know that it happens, and I can feel it in my own heart at times. It's like if some, you feel like somebody is not being kind or nice or they don't agree with what you have to say, um, that you can become defensive of your own name and you can get out there and you really can begin to, to lay into them. And you, you probably have run into people like this. I remember this, this one uh, story, which is not what is being exhorted here, with this girl in Australia. We lived in Australia for a few years as missionaries. And this one girl, a pastor's daughter, had gone to another church and she was set down at the church and the pastor said, just like I did, and said, you know, and you know, whatever, 1 Timothy 4.10, and many of you turned to 1 Timothy 4.10. And so she was sitting up front and she turned to 1 Timothy 4.10. And he says, don't you dare question me. <laughs> right in the middle of a service. She, she just was turning to the Bible reference. And he felt that as some kind of threat against his authority. And um, that clearly is not what was being talked about when it says, let no one despise you. The idea behind the word despise is disdain. And I don't believe that it's connected directly to the person or the character. Indirectly, it is. But it's more connected with the message. And it goes something like this. If the person who's preaching the gospel and calling the church to order is disrespected and disdained so that the words that that person brings are not heard and heeded, then it's incumbent upon that minister to stop that disrespect or that disdain, that despising. Does that make sense? Because what's on the line now is not just your opinion or my reputation, if my reputation is directly connected with the message that I bring and you're trying to invalidate me as a minister of the gospel, then that is what needs to be stopped. But just a overly sensitive pastor's you know, ego does not need to be protected. That's not what's being talked about. And hopefully you can see the difference between the two. And this is, this is what you see in a lot of the pastoral epistles, or not just pastoral, all of the epistles. Um, where Paul's like, he's, he's addressing an issue and a person, and he's like, we'll name them, and he'll talk about them, and they did me much harm, and he's, he's referring to them in this way. Why would he do that? Why is he so defensive of himself? Well, I think if you were to use the language of 1 Corinthians, he says, you've made me act like a fool and had to defend myself. I shouldn't have to defend myself, but I have to stand up and say, no, this is not right. The way you're characterizing me, the way you're, you're, you're speaking of me is completely wrong because that's, number one, not who I am. And if that is um, the case and you're making people think that, then they will not hear what I have to say and they will not receive the exhortation and the leadership of um, myself or any other, other leader. So it's kind of an interesting phrase to ponder. There, there's, there's, I think there's a lot of tension that surrounds that phrase, let no one despise you, because it can be taken in such a wrong direction. But it also, there is real authority that is given to the leaders of the church, and they are to protect that authority in as much as they are 
speaking forth the word of God, and that is being undermined. So we learn here that grace is what we need for salvation, that grace is going to sanctify us, that we should be motivated by Christ's next appearing. And when appropriate, we should receive the exhortation and even a rebuke that may come from the leadership of the church. But the key word is when appropriate, when it's right. Certainly no, no excuse for abusing the flock of God. And I'm afraid that happens far too often. And people use passages like this. And I also think it goes the other way is that maybe the the pastor or the leaders are being despised and it ends up undermining the message, the biblical message that they are bringing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have shown grace to us and that you have reached out to us in the way that you have. That, Lord, you've made salvation possible through faith, not by our works, not by keeping all 613 of the commands of the law. You've provided another way. And Lord, we are grateful for it because we know very well in our own self we could not and did not and do not live perfect lives. But thank you for your perfect son whom you've sent for his appearing. Lord, may we hear of the work of grace And may it motivate us to live holy lives and to be doing the right thing, being people that are just on fire for good works. And so, Lord, if if there's a needed correction, if there's a needed rebuke, as we read here, exhortation, then, Lord, I pray that it would be felt. I pray that it would be heard and that we would live in a way that is completely pleasing to you. And I want to give you just a moment to respond to the grace of God. Is there something that you need to deny? Is there something you need to be embracing? Is there something you need to be doing? Have you failed to live expectantly for the return of the Lord? Allowing it to motivate you to walk in holiness? Have you been hurt? Have you been tired out and you misunderstood tired out for burnout and you just took your hands completely off and you walked out well let the Lord speak to you let him minister to you agree with the Lord I will do whatever you ask me to do Lord and give me the power to do it I will be poured out Lord, we thank you for your grace. May we grow in our understanding of this grace. May we allow all of the the blessings of grace to impact us, to change us. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.